Welcome to TWW, The Weekly Wheel, where each week the Dharma Wheel rolls and delivers you new content available anywhere at any time in your everyday life. We present a mindfulness service, which has three components. First, meditation. And then we meditate with sound through chanting. You can have your mind wander when you sit in silence, but it's very difficult to wander as you chant. You need to focus on the next character, on your breathing, on the next line. And if you pat yourself on the back too much or become too self-aware, you'll miss a line. And then lastly, we have something called active listening, where we lean into and really listen to the Dharma talk given by our senseis. You could think of silent meditation and sound meditation through chanting as preparatory to get our minds focused and open and clear so we can really listen clearly and really take in the Dharma. And in a sense, it perfumes the mind. The mind is slowly changed as it hears new points of view, new perspectives, and new approaches to dealing with life. It's set up much like an in-person service. It's led, moderated by multiple voices. So you get a variety of opinions, a variety of, of perspectives as you go on your journey. So I hope you will join us now for this mindfulness service presented to you by the people at The Weekly Wheel and the Orange County Buddhist Church. Thank you so much. We will now have seated meditation. Take a moment to see that your back is straight and centered with your shoulders relaxed. If you're in a chair, it's best to sit forward slightly rather than leaning on the chair back and keep your feet flat on the floor. Try keeping your eyes half open, resting the gaze gently downward, without focusing on anything in particular. In the same way, be open to whatever sounds are coming into your ears, whether from inside the room or outdoors. We are not trying to isolate ourselves from the world around us, but rather feel that we're part of that world. If you like, you may count your breaths from one to ten. Inhale deeply, let it all out. Try slowing down your rate of breathing relative to what it would be at other times. We are not trying to think about anything in particular or visualize anything. We simply watch our thoughts come and go.
Please put your hands together in gasho. Bow. Namo Amidabutsu. Namo Amidabutsu. Namo Amidabutsu. Namandabutsu. 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 You may stretch your legs and then please stand. We will now have our standing meditation session. Your upper body is in the same position as for sitting meditation. Straight head and spine, shoulders back, eyes half open, hands comfortably positioned in front. Legs should be shoulder width apart with knees slightly bent. Again, rock forward and backward and side to side to find your center. Standing meditation reminds us to take our meditation practice out into the world, waiting in line at the store, being stuck in traffic, going through TSA security at the airport. Over time, meditation becomes a practice for the body and mind that can be recalled when needed most in situations that may be merely annoying, perhaps frustrating, or even stressful. We will begin at the sound of the bell.
Please put your hands together in gasho and bow. Namo Amida Butz, Namo Amida Butz, Namo Amida Butz, Namo Amida Butz, Namo Amida Butz. Return to your seat or cushion. Sitting in this way, we might wonder what purpose we are achieving. Actually, there is no specific purpose. I think it's really to make us aware of what sitting is, what breathing is, standing is. What are these simple activities that we do most of the time without thinking about them at all? We'll begin our second sitting at the bell.
Please put your hands together in Gasho. Bow. Namo Amidabutsu. Namo Amidabutsu. Namo Amidabutsu. Namandabutsu. 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 We will begin uh, sutra chanting. Sutra chanting is actually a portion of a sutra that we will chant. Uh, most sutras are far too long to be able to chant in one sitting. So for us, uh, we're usually chanting a verse out of a longer narrative or prose. And that's why uh, each line consists of perhaps four or five or seven characters. When we chant, we read from left to right, just like in English, and we move down the first column, and then we move to the second column, and so on. Open circles uh, represent bells uh, for the chant leader to ring. So we always begin a sutra chant with two bells. Whenever we change a section, we use one bell to kind of signal that we're changing uh, from one section to another. And then when you end a sutra chant, you always end with three bells. Each syllable here is written in Romanized characters, English characters. And each syllable here represents a kanji, a Chinese character. And it's written phonetically. It's the sound of the character. The vowels have the same pronunciation independent of location or their neighbor. So this is different from English. And the vowel sounds, uh, I've been told, resemble those in Spanish. So we have A, E, I, O, and U. And they're pronounced A, E, E, O, and U. And then uh, you'll see uh, italicized lines. Uh, those are leader lines that I chant alone. And you will also see underlines under some of the characters. And that means that rather than each character getting a single beat, an underlying character will get a beat and a half. And to kind of make up that little extra time, the next character in line will only get a half beat. And what you do is you don't really concern yourself too much about the meaning of what's being chanted. This isn't flashcards. We're not trying to learn something. This is a ritual. And so we chant together as a feeling of oneness. Don't worry too much about how you're doing. Be aware and mindful of each character. Uh, this is a form of meditation. Uh, rather than silent meditation, we're meditating through sound. So, you know, you see the character, you say it, you forget about it, you move on, and you say the next character. And over time, it becomes effortless, and you'll begin to memorize it uh, without realizing it. We will now chant the Junidai found on page 49. Junidai or 12 verses of reverence, originated in the Mahayana tradition of India during the time of the Pure Land Master Nagarjuna, around 150 CE. The verses were later translated into the Chinese text that we chant today. Like the larger sutra and the Amida sutra, the text of Junidai describes the spiritual qualities of Amida and the Pure Land using poetic language. Please read the translation of the Junidai found on page 51, which describes in detail what the 12 verses of reverence actually means. We will now chant the Junidai. Amida 
Oh. 
What is life? Frank Sinatra once said, I believe George Harrison's hauntingly beautiful song is one of the greatest love songs ever written. And it never even says, I love you. The song he was referring to is something from the album Abbey Road. Sinatra is correct, but this song also has another meaning. On one level, it is a romantic love song, but on another, it is a deeply religious confession. This something can be interpreted as a woman, but it can also be interpreted as a spiritual movement within George Harrison's life. From this religious perspective, he is acknowledging this indescribable something that is moving him. This helps to explain why he never sings the words, I love you. The Beatles broke up shortly after Abbey Road was recorded. This album is now considered by many to be their very best one. Soon after their breakup, George Harrison released his first solo album entitled All Things Must Pass. This too was likely his best. I believe this entire album is a religious one. Each song is an expression of his religious consciousness, often masquerading as a love song. I'd always thought that George Harrison was raised in the English Anglican tradition, but he was actually raised a Catholic. But sometime during the mid-1960s, he began to study Eastern religions and began the practice of Hinduism. 
he quote-unquote converted at the very height of his fame. His solo concerts became more like religious services than rock shows. This eroded much of his popularity and ticket sales, but this was of no concern to him. His music had become part of his religious practice. On the All Things Must Pass album, George Harrison also wrote a song entitled, What is Life? Superficially, the lyrics of this song sound like another love song. Tell me, what is my life without your love? Tell me, who am I without you, by my side? But George Harrison was a profoundly spiritual man, and I believe that the song, What is Life?, describes the religious meaning he had experienced within his own life. In other words, his life would have had no meaning if it were not for his practice of Eastern religion. It is the question, what is life, that led to his awakening. I would like to now discuss the impact that a single question can have on one's life. Imagine an infinitely long scroll of paper. On the left-hand side, there is a numbered list of questions as far as the eye can see. On the right-hand side is a blank line, where we are to fill in the answers. For example, what is the square root of four? Or who invented the telephone? I had a philosophy teacher in college who used this illustration as a metaphor for life. She said that we believe that this is the meaning of education and of life, finding and collecting answers to a supplied list of questions. Sadly, these questions are not of our own making, and neither are the answers. Both have been defined by others and then supplied to us. She felt that memorizing the answers to these questions does not make a person educated, nor does it give meaning to our lives. Instead, she wanted us to learn to think on our own. She wanted us to be critical thinkers. She felt that meaning came from coming up with our own questions. This is how one develops meaning, by setting course on a quest, by discovering meaning within themselves. Many people also come to Buddhism with such a list of questions, seeking to fill in all those blanks. Why do Buddhists chant? Why do Buddhists bow? These are important questions and a good place to start, but they are academic questions. They are good for studying Buddhism as a subject, like anthropology or history. Hopefully, over time, these questions will become more personal. Why do I chant? Why do I bow? The answers to these questions help give meaning to one's life. However, they are still the questions of others. The only difference is now that they are being asked in the first person rather than in the third. This is progress, but it still relies on collecting answers. At its core, Buddhism is not like this. What is my life? This is the single, burning, personal question that compels one to seek the way. This is the essence of Buddhist practice. It is not the many answers, but instead the single, personal question that defines Buddhism. It is the question that creates the path for us to follow. One finds meaning through seeking rather than through acquiring fixed answers. One's life becomes a life of process, a process of openness and discovery. 20 plus years ago, when I began to practice Buddhism, I was a bit unsure of where this was all headed. People don't just choose their own religion, do they? I worried what people might think of me. Was I having a midlife crisis? It was George Harrison who convinced me that I was not. If a beetle could become a Hindu, then surely it must be very easy indeed for a computer programmer to become a Buddhist. And it was. It was just my life. In Gosho, 
Reverend John Turner. Today's program was presented and produced by the Buddhist Education Center of Orange County Buddhist Church. This podcast is copyrighted 2022 by the Orange County Buddhist Church, Anaheim, California, all rights reserved.